Welcome to the uh, discussion of a year of pandemic, the state of global human mobility, and what is on the horizon. I'm Andrew Seely. I'm the president of the Migration Policy Institute. And um, let me start out. I will tell you a little bit about today's event in a moment, but let's start out with a housekeeping note. Um, if you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org, or you can call in the United States 202-266-1929. Um, you can tweet any questions you have. We'll, we're going to have questions and answers at the end of this discussion. Um, there will not be a voice question and answer period. It is all going to be through text. Um, but there is on your WebEx screen, there is an area where you can type questions into a Q&A function. It says Q&A on it. Um, so please, uh, you know, anytime during the event, feel free to type questions in the Q&A function. You can also send them to events at migrationpolicy.org.org. You can also tweet at us um, at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. Um, today's webinar, diving now into what we're going to talk about today. Today's webinar is the release event for a new MPI IOM report available on the Migration Policy Institute website. COVID-19 and the State of Global Mobility in 2020. It's written by Megan Benton, Jana Badalova, Samuel, David Afgore, and Timo Schmidt. Um, you will hear from, from Jana of the authors shortly. This report looks at how global mobility has changed over the past 12 months. Um, it is based on something that the International Organization on Migration has been doing with their displacement tracking mechanism, the famous DTM, which is really, I recommend to you as a, a fabulous tool. And, and one of the things that they've done with it is, is look at how global mobility has changed in countries around the world and at different border points, um, including airports and seaports, as well as physical border points around the world. And this was originally the idea of Nuno Nunez and his team, DTM team at IOM. And we want to thank him and Ivana and the whole DTM team for, first of all, approaching us with the idea of trying to do an analysis of the fabulous database that they had, but also the, the ability, the, the opportunity to work together with the IOM DTM team in producing this report. Um, and I really recommend the data that they have to you. Um, the database has been really tracking what has changed. And we thought that this was an important baseline, that this provides an important baseline for future discussions on mobility for at least three reasons. One is it helps us look at what could be modified. It tells us I mean, what, what this report will tell you is what changed, right? It's going to tell you what changed over the past year as countries not only went into lockdown, but also put restrictions on mobility, on flights, on border crossings, on, on seaports, on all kinds of mobility um, at, at their border crossing points. But it tells us at least three things going forward. One is, is it gives us a baseline to look at what needs to change and what can change if we want to have an organized, measured, and coordinated return to mobility as countries have vaccines. Right as countries begin to look at some sort of return to mobility, how to do it in a way that is organized. Secondly, it provides some insight into discussions um, further into the future and how we can manage borders and mobility better um, and how these decisions interact with immigration systems. And Alan Burson, I know, will speak to that as well, but how we rethink borders, how we rethink mobility um, that goes beyond the COVID period. And finally, it provides a, a record that we should be reviewing as we look at how we manage future pandemics. We should probably be assuming that this is not the last pandemic that we will face as a global community. And we should start planning now on how we do things next time and what we can learn from the restrictions that were put in place for, for future decisions. 
Today, we're going to have two panels um, that will discuss this, um, and then we'll go to questions and answers. But before we get to the panels, first, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce Antonio Vitorino, the general director, the director general of the International Organization on Migration, IOM. Um, Antonio has more than 27 years of international and national political and academic experience, which has brought him consistently and constantly in touch with immigration and migration issues around the world. From 1999, he, uh, he has been the, the director general at IOM since October 2018. From 1999 to 2004, he served as European Commissioner for Justice and Home Affairs. Prior to joining the European Commission, Vitorino, Mr. Vitorino served as Deputy Prime Minister of Portugal from 1995 to 97. He also served as Portugal State Secretary for Parliamentary Affairs and a member of the Portuguese Parliament, and, as well as the European Parliament. And for more than 25 years, he served as an assistant professor and professor of constitutional law, international human rights law, and EU law and justice at home affairs at the Lisbon Law School and the Lisbon Nova University. Um, Antonio Vitorino, it's a great pleasure to have you here. And, and let me turn it over to you for some opening remarks. Thank you so much, uh, Andrew, and good afternoon to all of you. I want to start by thanking you, Andrew, your team, and MPI for this excellent collaboration. And if you allow me, I would also thank the colleagues across IOM that have contributed to this report. Notably, as you have said, the displacement uh, tracking metrics team who provided the databases on mobility restrictions. As you said, this paper outlines in detail the evolution of mobility restrictions over the course of 2020 and the shock, the international migration and the international travel that we are still experiencing now. It is based uh, on data collected by IOM colleagues in missions across the world. We have, we have tracked travel restrictions and border closures, documenting not just the level, but to the type of restrictions in place across over 4,000 points of entry. The resulting mobility tracking database that you mentioned combines this field information with data from the International Air Transport Association, the IATA, the World Health Organization, of course, and relevant uh, trusted government and media source sources. The paper shows that uh, while initially countries imposed emergency blanket bans and travel lockdowns, these have now been largely replaced by a quite uh, diverse range of health-focused restrictions, including, as we all know, pre-departure testing and post-arrival quarantine. This evolution, nevertheless, has been uneven across the world. The imposition of restrictions by governments have been closely related to the different waves of COVID-19 and the responses to changes in infection rate beyond a country's own borders. The rollout of vaccines across the world presents a glimmer of hope that normality one day will come back. But we are still a long way from the resumption of worldwide mobility and must now consider the implications of the restrictions we have seen imposed over the past year as well as how to integrate health concerns into cross-border mobility over the long term. Before turning to our panels this morning, 
I would like to take this opportunity to highlight a few issues that the paper lay bar and that I hope this morning's discussion will explore further. First, that the fluctuating restrictions of the past year have created unprecedented levels of instability and uncertainty for a wide range of sectors, notably travel and tourism, but also for sectors that depend largely on migrant labor. It is not simply that movement is restricted, but that measures and requirements imposed are subject to rapid revision, often without pre-warning and taken largely unilaterally. It is no longer possible to plan ahead effectively. Efforts to create more collaborative approaches, such as the European Union traffic light systems to assess travel risk across the EU are still in the very first phase. And while governments remain focused on a gradual reopening to allow tourism and business travel, some of the deepest impacts have been felt by migrants and will be migrants, unable to reach their destination to take up work or study or to be reunited with their families. A return to a more predictable approach to cross-border mobility is much needed, not least because countries are reliant on migrants for economic recovery and economic growth. For this, I believe, governments will need to coordinate at regional and at global level. Second, the restrictions imposed have revealed some core fragilities within national immigration systems, not least preparedness and response to the shock of the pandemic. The issuance of visas has dropped dramatically, and particularly in countries reliant on people and paper-based processes, and in many cases created revenue losses that have undermined other core border and immigration functions. Backlogs have increased as short-term changes to entry rules have delayed decisions on visa applications. We have seen huge steps forward in digital innovation, bringing processing online to facilitate entry and residence and the future lies here for sure. But in countries and locations where few remote or few digital solutions are available, remote working and suspensions have left migrants stranded and disadvantage those with limited access to online solutions, including, of course, migrants. In 2020, a number of countries took a commendable and a very pragmatic approach offering visa extensions and waivers to migrants in country to reduce the bureaucracy of renewal and the risk of accidental irregularity. But this was an emergency response. As we enter the second year of the pandemic, there is a need to find a more sustainable set of solutions, which also respect individual needs and mobility intentions, while integrating health concerns into border management over the long term. Finally, as countries now turn to vaccination rollout and the prospect of certifying vaccinated individuals for travel, 
begins to take hold, we must look at the broader implications of these for the future of mobility. The uneven rollout of vaccination programming worldwide, described, as you recall, by the head of the WHO as a catastrophic moral failure, could well lead to a two-tier system for travel in the future. If vaccination becomes a core prerequisite to cross-border mobility, then a large proportion of the world's population, primarily in the developing world, will be shut out of the international travel system. A global mobility divide already evident today risks becoming entrenched. Regardless, governments will need to ensure that the measures in place to guarantee health secure travel are accessible and affordable, both for partner countries who may need to put in place infrastructure to meet these new standards, as well as the travelers, including migrants, who will carry many of the new costs. I believe that this paper and the very fruitful collaboration between MPI and IOM, for which I am again very grateful, highlights the dramatic changes that the world has undergone over the past year. The pandemic has disrupted our lives and inhibited our ability to plan it has sharply, though hopefully briefly, reversed the trend towards stable yet growing mobility around the world. Getting back on the path to mobility will undoubtedly require new, innovative and collaborative work on a global level. This paper offers insight into the scale of the challenge ahead and now we might return to full mobility while keeping populations safe. It's a first step, it's a sound first step, but there is a lot of work ahead of us. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Antonio. That was a great way to start off this discussion. And I would particularly emphasize what you said about the global divide on mobility, um, which is really a central finding in this report as well and a central concern as we look forward. Um, but thank you for, for IOMs, for the great collaboration with IOM in this effort, and, and thank you for your opening remarks. Um, we're gonna turn to the first panel now, and um, the, we have a great panel made up of three people. Jana Badalova is one of the authors of this report, uh, my colleague at MPI. I'm very proud to say she's a colleague of mine at MPI. She's a senior policy analyst and the manager of the Migration Data Hub and the leader of our data team at MPI. Um, Alan Burson um, needs no introduction, but I'll introduce him anyway, is the former commissioner of US Customs and Border Protection, former assistant secretary of Homeland Security and International Affairs, um, you, uh, inaugural fellow right now of the Homeland Security Project at Harvard, Harvard's Kennedy uh, School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, um, and a senior advisor and policy consultant at Covington and Burling, and a member of MPI's advisory board as well and Elizabeth Collette, um, Special Advisor for Policy and Strategy to the Director General at the IOM, and also, especially for us, um, the Founding Director of MPI Europe before she went to the IOM, was the Founding Director exactly 10 years ago of, of MPI Europe, which continues very strong, but which she gave leadership for many years. So great to have all three of you here. 
Um, we are going to uh, dive into the first discussion and we're going to start with Jana to tell us a little bit about the report as one of the authors of the report and then we'll go to the rest of the panel. Thank you, Andrew, and greetings, everyone. I'm delighted to share the results of our research, and it was a wonderful co collaboration with uh, IOM. And since I have only 10 minutes to pack in everything that we learned in, in a number of months, I'm going to dive in, right in. So what did we learn? Um, Cross-border mobility in 2020 uh, can be divided in three phases. The first one, we call mobility lockdowns. Between January and May 2020, we've witnessed a domino effect in, in action as governments around the world in, began introducing first slowly and then seemingly overnight, introduced thousands of travel restrictions. By the end of March, more than 43,000 travel measures were in place and every country, territory and area worldwide was subject to at least 70 travel bans. The outcome of the, this unprecedented um, level of uh, restrictions was that cross-border cross movement by and large came to a halt by the end of March. By the end of May, there were more than 63,000 pandemic-related measures in place. Often these border measures and restrictions were uh, initiated with limited warning and no coordination between countries. Embassies and consular offices were closed, refugee resettlement um, temporarily suspended, leaving countless travelers in need of repatriation assistance, many families separated, and thousands of migrants and seafarers stranded with no financial resources and support. At the same time, in this period, countries have introduced or expanded exceptions to travel restrictions, primarily for uh, nationals and residents um, of those countries and their family members, uh, but also diplomats and, and staff of international organizations, and um, in, at least in the beginning, healthcare workers. As the pandemic progressed, new categories of exception were developed as governments adjusted to, to figure out uh, who they wanted to let in. But in, the, in phase one, overwhelmingly, uh, majority of migrants who wanted to leave for another country or wanted to return home um, had very difficult time to do so. As governments began to understand the, the substantial costs and, uh, and also benefits of different travel uh, measures and to build capacity to manage these policies better. They began the staggered reopening, uh, starting with uh, airport travel, uh, travels via airports. During the second phase between, uh, between June and September, different strategies uh, toward using migration management as a public health tool have emerged. For, for instance, Australia and New Zealand imposed travel bans in early April and almost exclusively used route restrictions uh, th through the end of September, with, with all ports of entry uh, being closed and only returning nationals were allowed to enter. On the opposite end, we have the Caribbean nations 
that, that switch to health requirements and other more flexible entry conditions much earlier in the year, and they allowed even tourists, a critical source of revenue for those countries, to come as well. So in the what, what was another interesting uh, aspect of this second uh, phase is that the travel bans, the harshest of travel restrictions, were increasingly substituted by health-related measures, uh, including certificates and pre-departure uh, COVID-19 tests, uh, quarantine measures, uh, health declarations, and, and others. The shift toward using health restriction, uh, health measures uh, instead of travel uh, bans was also not uniform. I already mentioned the Caribbean na nations, they shifted to that much earlier, um, followed by the Gulf Cooperation uh, Council, countries in the Gulf region, uh, and those in Sub-Saharan Africa, and then later by uh, in those in ASEAN and East Asia. In the third phase between October and December 2020, we are seeing continuing the, uh, of divergence of approaches taken by countries. Um, Mexico in the United uh, Arab Emirates, for instance, opened uh, um, their homes, uh, the, opened even to tourists. In contrast, uh, Australia, Canada, and Israel remain closed to non-essential travel. The general trend um, toward using health-related measures instead of travel bans has continued, however. By, by mid-December, more than 111,000 uh, measures were put in place, but the overwhelming majority of them were health requirements. And countries continued learning from their own uh, and other, others' experience. For instance, requirements for travelers to stay in quarantine hotels became less widespread, in part because uh, quarantine has been shown to be uh, costly and screening at the airports um, not, to be, uh, not to be particularly effective. As the harbinger of the future, marked by new and more dangerous variants, uh, in the in mid-December, when the UK government announced a new, more transmittable variant, many countries swiftly implemented new travel restrictions that barred arrivals from the UK. And what was interesting about this moment is that this, the speed of government's response to these new developments uh, was significantly faster to what we saw in, in January and February, and that reflects the greater awareness and sensitivity of, uh, to the risks, uh, risks at hand. A couple of um, general observations looking at the entire 2020. So while we were all in the same boat called the unprecedented global health uh, crisis, the response to the, the pandemic and the subsequent migration experience varied a lot over time by region and by type of uh, uh, travel. IOM estimated by mid-July um, that nearly 3 million people were stranded abroad. Most of them were regular travelers such as migrant workers, uh, tourists, international students, but many were left without consular assistance, including support related to their legal 
uh, and visa status in the countries. And, and many had very little resources to meet their basic needs, and such as food and shelter. The gap between movers and non-movers has widened. Some people were able to use their financial resources, nationality, or professional status to continue travel um, across border for work, uh, uh, return, or even tourism. In contrast, others couldn't move or faced high, much higher costs to do so due to new visa requirements and high smuggling fees. The pandemic also has exacerbated the socioeconomic and legal situation of all already vulnerable migrant groups. Many lost jobs and income, uh, those in temporary um, unprotected jobs, such as domestic uh, and uh, work and agricultural workers often lacked access to social safety net and protective equipment. Um, the experience of exploitation also worsened, uh, including employment agencies in multiple countries, um, confisc confiscating passports, not providing workers with accommodations, um, and not paying for work done. Uh, those seeking the assistance of smugglers to go abroad or to return home became much more dependent on their costly services. On the government side, by and large, countries pursued their own strategies, um, uh, largely responding to their internal political and economic pressures. But those with prior experiences with ep epidemics such as SARS in 2003 and, and four uh, were able to adjust and navigate the process of um, uh, adjustment faster and more efficiently. There has been also promising signs of progress at the regional and sub-regional levels, as well as international level to restart uh, travel and mobility and to improve uh, coordination. And Mr. Viterino mentioned the EU uh, system um, of uh, travel risk assessment, a traffic light, a traffic light system, but other, other region, uh, regions also had good uh, put, put in place good practices, Africa's uh, various regional bodies taking steps to coordinate pandemic-related travel and public health measures, and with varying levels of success at first, but with greater co coordination in the end, we were much more successful. There were a number of interesting ideas, for instance, the establishment of travel bubbles that emerged. For instance, uh, the, uh, a travel bubble among the Baltic states, among the Caribbean nations, between Singapore and, and Hong Kong, between India and Bangladesh, they all, uh, th these were interesting experiments, but, but by and large, they had false st starts throughout 2020, in, in big part because of lack of uniformity in regulations between countries and also unexpected and uneven rises in COVID cases. Uh, the fate of um, travel bubbles as a workable model is not uh, decided um, uh, yet, as Australia and New Zealand announced a renewed attempt to create one, hopefully now empowered by greater knowledge of what works and the potential pitfalls. Um, on the other hand, a green line uh, model that enabled business and work permit travelers between 
countries, the bilateral, bilateral agreements between Singapore and Malaysians, for instance, seem to work. And now, uh, thanks to the bilateral arrangements for tra such travelers between Singapore and China, Singapore and Germany, Singapore and Japan uh, are now are in place. The bottom line is that looking into the future, we will continue facing the difficult trade-offs between public health and travel restrictions against the economic, uh, huge economic and human costs of restricted movement. And we have a terrific line, uh, lineup of speakers who would help us think through the these trade-offs and the next steps. Uh, thank you, Andrew, back to you. Thank you, Jana. That was a great, uh, great overview and, and analysis of the the main findings. And let me turn it over to Alan Burson, who's been looking at these issues both in North America, but also around the world. Alan, over to you for a few minutes. Well, thank you, uh, uh, Andrew. And I want to uh, thank uh, uh, Gene for that report and MPI and IOM for actually setting the baseline. I think the importance of the work that's going on now is not only to assess the uh, where we've been over the past year, but to recognize that this is just the beginning of the incorporation of public health into the security protocols that govern cross-border trade and travel. Uh, with regard to the North American uh, issue, I'll take uh, seven or eight minutes to go through uh, what was a good news story at the outset a year ago, quickly became a bad news story. And uh, now, as we sit here in April of uh, 2021, is becoming a better news story. Uh, the good news story actually started out uh, when we avoided a travel ban in North America. What we saw was a, coord a coordinated approach to a partial uh, a limitation on, uh, on travel uh, while keeping open the uh, trade so critical to the shared production platform that exists in North America. Uh, it was a good news story because we avoided the uh, post 9-11 uh, shutdown that took place and paralyzed both trade and travel in the aftermath of the terrorist attack September 2001. Uh, what we saw uh, and what we thought would happen would be uh, then a coordinated approach to uh, reopening, uh, adjusting the models of 9-11 to uh, take into account the uh, pandemic uh, with the kind of collaboration that we saw in the aftermath of the terrorist attack, the smart border accords, the close coordination between uh, and among U.S., Canadian, and Mexican officials. And uh, that uh, didn't happen. And what we saw, consistent with what is reported, uh, what Gene just reported, is a patchwork of, uh, of responses across uh, North America. And the only thing that was consistent was the month-by-month -month, uh, continuation of this uh, ban on non-essential travel uh, while maintaining the trade uh, movement, the flow of goods and cargo across the border in uh, mostly uh, un, uh, uh, unfettered fashion. Well, the Canadian government issued uh, uh, entry restrictions against all countries except the U.S. and then even closed its land border uh, in mid-March for a while. Uh, and then in early 2021, passengers traveling to Canada have to demonstrate they have a 14-day quarantine plan. They pass a health check before boarding the plane and have a health screening on, on arrival. Uh, the U.S. originally banned uh, travel from uh, China, then extended it to about 30 countries uh, and closed the U.S. consular offices uh, all over the world. 
making it impossible to get a travel permit. Uh, and then uh, both uh, Canada and the United States for the entry of asylum seekers in response to the public health crisis. I think what uh, what we see now is uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, is now, in, as of January 2021, starting to uh, uh, put some of the requirements in. You you need to get tested before you get on an airplane, and you uh, have to stay, or you stay in, in in quarantine. And then, of course, the Mexican response was entirely different. Mexico issued no restrictions on travel, started uh, subjecting passengers to a health screening in uh, uh, at at airports in July, and uh, shifted that to a health declaration. So we saw this again a patchwork of uh, of responses. I think what we can say is uh, what were the uh, what were the basic uh, failures? I think uh, we didn't see the follow up. There was no coordination. There was a continuation of the of the shutdown on on uh, non-essential travel without really distinguishing between migrants, tourists, business travelers in a way that uh, will become uh, important as we go forward. Uh, we did uh, we saw no guidance virtually from public health authorities on conditions. I think the what happened to the tourism industry is uh, is uh, uh, very reflective of that. The cruise ship industry was basically shut down in uh, March of 2020, was told that it would be given guidance. There was no gu guidance given, uh, uh, followed by uh, the absolute radio silence that uh, has continued with regard to, uh, to that uh, industry segment. There was no... Uh, uh, communication basically to the private sector from the governments or to the public about what in fact uh, uh, vaccination, what in fact having the COVID meant for your travel uh, uh, qualifications or any of the kinds of basic guidance that uh, we're going to need and we're starting to get, albeit slowly. And then there was really very little guidance to uh, customs and border protection officials as to how to manage this or to Canadian border services or to aduanas in Mexico let alone any coordination among them to make this uh, this happen. So what are the uh, what are the lessons I think that we uh, we take away? First, uh, when you it's always easy to shut something down and that was the good news story. That seemed to be done in a coordinated way, but much more difficult to uh, open it up. So when we shut down travel tourism uh, the way we have, you have to immediately start the policy mechanism to start reopening it. What are the criteria? You have to have the kinds of meetings and coordination that uh, still, frankly, hasn't uh, taken place among the officials of the three North American core countries. Second is this radio silence is deafening. You really have to create communication channels, both to the public and to the private sector. And uh, thirdly, you have to make a plan. You know, Tim Geithner in the economic crisis of 2008 and 9 said, no plan is worse than a bad plan. You can improve a bad plan as you move on, but we've really had no planning and no evidence of planning uh, as we uh, as we move through this year. And then fourth, and this is to Andrew's earlier point, you cannot lump, lump migrants, tourists, business travelers into one uh, category of restriction. And uh, some uh, suspect that uh, the Trump administration used the uh, the occasion of the pandemic basically to shut down the immigration system even more completely than it had been able to do beforehand by policy measures. Uh, I think we're seeing the same problem uh, as the Biden administration struggles to make a distinction between 
non-essential travel, migration, uh, how to deal with the migration protection protocol of, 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 of persons that uh, were left in Mexico. But again, there's an unevenness in, in the way in which uh, migrants are, are being uh, handled. So what do we do going forward? I think uh, the first thing is to get the planning started. We have to start convening, and that's why the kind of work that uh, the MPI is, uh, has been leading in the NGO sector and IOM in the, uh, in the public sector is absolutely critical. We have to start. We can't let the uh, best be the enemy of the good. We have to come up with concrete proposals. So let me offer uh, four uh, principles for going forward. First, this has to be science-based. We, we need immediate steps that are based on epidemiologic insight, not uh, political determinations. Second, we have to resume safe travel, and we have to do it in a manner that fosters public confidence. And this is both in the migration area as well as in the tourism and, uh, and business visitor side. Uh, third, we need trusted travelers in a public health sense now, and we have to we have to determine that according to the risk management system that generally has been developed and can be applied and adapted to this uh, this area, and it has to be perceived by the public as being done in a fair and impartial way. And then we have to find a way to document uh, the safe border crossers uh, as we uh, as we move forward. Uh, Four recommendations then, based on those principles and, and what we've seen. We need an electronic, a domestic electronic travel authorization system. We need to be able to have people be able to register beforehand, uh, upload their vaccination uh, certificates or uh, physician evidence that they actually have uh, antibodies and have tested to such through antigen testing. Uh, we need to uh, uh, actually recognize and use the trusted traveler system. Uh, we, we, we cannot, again, uh, have a complete solution to this before we start opening up the border in a, in a, in a fairly dramatic fashion uh, that otherwise we're going to be overtaken by events. Uh, people uh, will, will, will simply start crossing and countries will be faced with the need to uh, basically open up uh, uh, their uh, travel corridors without having necessary precautions in place. Second, we need a broad public affairs effort that makes clear the requirements. You know, I've been vaccinated myself now with a Pfizer vaccination, and still the CDC guidance is hesitant. And we need to, as we gather more data, we need to step out and uh, actually provide the public with, uh, with the information. A third, we need to actually get health officials working with border management officials, both on the migration front and on the on the travel front, uh, we have to uh, train our border uh, officials uh, to introduce the new techniques that uh, will be uh, will be developed. And we need to do it now, uh, recognizing that uh, this is going to be an ongoing need in the uh, in the public uh, uh, in the in the cross border uh, tr trade and travel uh, regime going forward. And then lastly, uh, we do need to take into account that migrants are different from long uh, immigrants, they're different from tourists, and we have to have a, a system uh, developed that takes into account those distinctions. Let me uh, just end by saying, uh, we're not gonna be perfect. We have to start off with, with, with uh, projects that uh, are not uh, perfect, they are not entirely comprehensive, 
but that they start the ball rule, uh, rolling in the right direction. Otherwise, as I indicated, the uh, news story that's getting better will turn to uh, a bad news story again as chaos uh, rather than some coherent approach to this takes place first at the regional level, and then uh, we take regional solutions and start to build back uh, uh, global uh, connections in, in ways that are coherent. Um, but thank you again for, uh, for, for gathering the facts and the baseline. I think of Mark Twain's uh, wisdom, which is, uh, uh, I think, somewhat applicable here, which is, uh, First, let's get all the facts, then you can distort them as much as you'd like. What we, <laughs> what we need at this point is, is actually the factual baseline that I think MPI and, and the IOM are, uh, are contributing, contributing so mightily to. Uh, thank you for that effort. Thank you, Alan, that was fabulous. And, uh, and, and we will try and stick to the facts in this discussion here. We can start distorting them after the event, but, uh, but we are hoping to, to stick to the facts. Um, there are a couple of questions that have come in already on the Q&A function, um, including from our friend Ray Kozlowski. Um, please keep your questions coming, but I'm going to turn to, to Elizabeth Collette first um, from IOM and then uh, for the final discussion of the panel, and then we're going to go to the, the questions and answers. Liz. Thanks, Andrew. Um, as always, speaking after the Director General, it's always a little bit of a challenge because I'm effectively his sweeper, sweeping up the points <laughs> that he hasn't had the opportunity to make. Um, but I want to start a little bit by, by following on from, from, from what Alan said in terms of if we're going to start coordinating and, and having coherent planning, we need to start with the information. And, and this is where I think this paper and the data set on which it's based is incredibly important because it reveals an increasing diversity of measures. We have a huge number of different approaches taken by different countries and also an asymmetry of measures. Uh, countries are opening up to each other, but that may not be mutually reciprocated. So you have an extraordinarily complex landscape whereby moving in one direction may be easier than moving in the other. Um, and we may not have that 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 sense of, of, of mobility in the fullest sense, but it's very um, asymmetric. And I think as, as the paper highlights the short term changes in policy, very frequent short term changes in policy, which makes it very, very difficult to track the status quo at any given moment worldwide. And this is what that data set gives us. And I think it should come as no surprise that some of the earliest inquiries about that, that, that the work on, on points of entry and the work on mobility restrictions that IOM was doing came from airlines in the travel industry who really wanted to understand that landscape in order to be able to plan ahead. And even having that was important. And now governments also use it, obviously, but I think that that appetite from the private sector, I think, reflects that need um, across the world. And, and obviously, for, for individual travelers, it's even more complex to try and access this kind of information. So hopefully this illuminates um, a few different things. Um, I just want to make a couple of points in terms of where we are right now and the sense of pivoting as we move into uh, move from 2020 sort of emergency response and the blanket the blanket approach of opening and closing borders to 2021 and now a more nuanced and experimental approach to managing borders and what the implications of that are. I think, you know, in 2020, there was opening and closing of borders based on infection rates at either end and that sense of risk at either end. And I think that's kind of exemplified a little bit by the by the traffic light system that the European Union used sort of understanding what risk was in aggregate. Um, and using borders effectively as a valve 
to switch on and off depending on risk. And now we're developing systems that are about making travel itself safer. And certain colleagues of, of mine at IOM have been doing risk assessments at points of entry, I think over a thousand points of entry, sort of assessing how, the, how that border crossing itself needs to change in order to accommodate sort of health secure me measures, how to incorporate testing, how to accommodate social distancing and all these sorts of things. In addition to the things that we're seeing now in terms of, of using quarantine, using testing, using exemptions for vaccination, which by the way, are not an alternative to a border closure, but being used as an alternative to testing in a number of countries. And you see this even in the last couple of weeks, Croatia, Slovenia, Thailand, Lebanon. So a, a broad diversity of countries have said, if you have proof of vaccination, that means you don't need to be tested as opposed to we will open up to you and only you. It is a, it's an alternative sort of health measure. Um, and this suggests a more individualized approach and using borders then as a filter rather than a valve. So managing risk in a much more nuanced way. And I think there are you know, risks associated with this and, and the WHO is it's, its overarching recommendation remains do not use you know, vaccination certificate, certification as a means of mobility, partly because we don't yet know what the science is but also some of the ethical implications of that, of shutting people out of systems, given that uneven rollout that the Director General spoke about of vaccination programming. And so there are risks that by taking a more filtering approach, you're also taking an approach of filtering out who your would-be traveler is, as opposed to taking at face value everyone who comes along because of the costs associated with some of these um, procedures. And I think this is, this shift, however, is important in a number of different ways. First, as an impact on individuals, and I think it's important, as, as, as Alan pointed out, to differentiate the different types of traveller and, and the issues for migrants, asylum seekers and other categories where the need to move is, is more than just, um, as I am desperate to do, have a cocktail on a beach somewhere warm. Um, but really um, understanding how to make sure that people are not stranded in locations separated from families um, without support. Uh, to give you an indication, over the last year, IOM has, has given support to stranded migrants, over 100,000 stranded migrants, but we estimated several million people were really stuck in country, often having lost a job or lost um, or, or wishing to return home, having come to the end of their contract, really with very little financial support, often being held in, 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 in substandard conditions. You know, we really have to sort of think, okay, well, how do you prioritize and, and make sure that, that those people can, can safely return and we can resolve those issues without having to, to create um, huge policy exceptions. Then I think the impacts on, on governments and the private sector, um, thinking about planning and predictability, how are you going to plan travel over the next years? How are you going to sort of rebuild these systems that have been effectively decimated over the last year? Um, and then thinking about the impacts on, on systems themselves and immigration systems. And I think one part of this that maybe has been overlooked is how visa costs and fee-based visa models also have a broader implication for the immigration system because they subsidize other functions across the border. And, and really understanding that there are new costs now of reduced mobility, additional costs. We're coming from a deficit in some cases in terms of how to finance the 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 system of uh, mobility that we have worldwide 
And who's going to bear those costs? I think there are proposals really to have airlines take on a larger role in this regard. There are proposals in some countries to raise visa costs. I think the US is sort of raising some of the fees for, for visas. In other countries, those, those, those fees are being reduced um, in order to encourage mobility. And, and that then plays in onto the dynamics of how, how mobility is perceived by the government then putting those policies in place as well. Because as we've seen within the European Union, countries reliant on tourism are much more anxious to open up than countries who don't necessarily see that as a, as a big part of the economic model. We see countries making exceptions for seasonal workers and, and, and other groups. Um, I think I read this week that Australia will, will, will give half price quarantine to, to workers coming to work in the agricultural industry. So, you know, starting to see these, these efforts to try and uh, manage um, some of those costs because it is likely that in the short to medium term, it will become more expensive. And how, how are we going to look at that? Um, and as just as a final point here, I think, is also then looking at the longer term. And I think this is where um, we're all sort of now turning our minds. There is a huge amount of experimentation. We're not yet seeing convergence in the way governments are approaching this. We're seeing huge diversity, which is in turn, I think, creating a huge amount of instability in the system. And the question of what sticks in the medium to long term, as we learn more about how effective testing is in terms of managing risk versus quarantine, which is costly, as, as, as Jana said, versus uh, the effectiveness of, of different vaccines and different approaches to uh, certification of vaccination, you know, what is going to stick and what do we have to integrate then into these systems in the long term um, in order to proof them for the future? Bearing in mind that not only do we have to find our way through this pandemic, which could take several more years, but that the next health crisis may look very different. And I think everyone wants to avoid a situation where we have that global shutdown that we saw in, in, in the spring of 2020, even while we may have a health crisis that looks very different and has a number of unknowns, as we saw a year ago at the same time. So how do we create that cushion? that it allows us to be more nuanced in our approaches in the long term and think that through. So I, I, I support this call for, for global conversations on this and how we manage that and how we think about um, the information exchange at the very at the very baseline level and that information gathering and, and what data sets we need to use as a reference point. But then beyond that, how do we make sure that this does not become a, an, an internally focused set of policy decisions, which only later become coordinated down the road, because that has a huge disruptive effect. Um, and I think I'll, I'll leave it there for now so that we can have a, a good discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Thank that you. was fabulous. Um, that was really three great presentations. And we've now got three questions to go with three great presentations. So let's go into our question and answer period. Um, one question that comes from Jennifer Whitlock is about the CDC order in the United States, Title 42, and whether it is, you know, she says periodically, whether given other health measures that are now in place, it, it needs to stay in place or not at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and it's actually the U.S.-Canadian border as well, I guess, at U.S. borders, um, land borders. From uh, Patricia Porto comes the question about how asylum seekers are being affected in the U and if they're being affected differently across different countries. And from Ray Kozlowski, good friend of MPI and many of us uh, personally, 
the question of the UK and Brazilian variants that apparently flew into the United States in um, returning US residents back, um, one of whom was tested three days before leaving the UK, um, as is required by CDC and DHS. But, uh, but you know, if, if that testing was insufficient because people can be infected and yet not, not yet show up, what combination of measures can best reduce the risk of future variants from crossing international borders by air? And that's certainly a major question now is the, the threat increases from these other variants. So with that, let me, let's just go back in the same order that we started off with. So what, what do we start with Anna and then we'll go to Alan and then, and then Elizabeth. Jana. Sure. So, um, the, the question from me is, of course, very, very important because thinking, think, thinking about the future, um, can we, can we truly rely on travel restrictions as the, the, the only measure if a new, uh, more, more, more or more dangerous virus, uh, uh, begin begins spreading, or uh, all or a new pandemic altogether uh, shows up. And the interesting thing about and from this from our research and uh, uh, work has has been done to date is that what what we know is that uh, the there is always a lag in time between. Uh, when countries realize that something has happened and the new variants pop up in their uh, communities and when the the travel occurred. And there are enough of travelers, including uh, nationals uh, of those countries, their family members and others on the exceptions list, which are an important aspect of uh, um, managing migration that have already arrived from high risk uh, places. So I think that go, going forward, uh, seeing uh, travel restrictions, as Liz mentioned, kind of has evolved to delay transmission rather than prevent uh, infection altogether would go much, much further in, in thinking than, than thinking uh, that let, let's just cross the borders as, as a way to, um, to deal with the pandemic. So what we really are looking for is, is the um, um, development of a system of multiple uh, checks and balances where travel restrictions is just one of many uh, measures put, put in place that would, uh, uh, so we can identify, um, coordinate response between countries, between agencies within within the countries and, and, and have the both testing and vaccination and uh, uh, travel related measures in place that work as a cohesive model rather than as a patchwork um, approach as we have seen in 2020. Let me put out two more questions that came in while you were speaking, Jana, because I think okay. they might be relevant to you. One is, you know, how have migrants been affected differently than travelers from Lydia Booth and from Wei Lee? Do we know anything about how the global migration stock has been affected by? by travel restrictions. And it may be too early to have those numbers, but since you follow those numbers closely. Right. Um, yeah, so there is uh, the impact on migrants and different types of travels. Uh, what we've seen in the data have been quite uh, uh, different. The Those with uh, re resources, of course, 
um, experienced significantly less impact and, and their travel opportunities rebounded much, much faster than than those who were seeking um, asylum uh, protection um, uh, either in other countries uh, as well as those uh, trying to find a safer place within the countries. The, the number of IDPs, um, uh, international displaced uh, people uh, have increased, but the options of where for them to go uh, have decreased. In, in large part because the uh, the information was not available, the resources were not available, and and uh, there was also an evidence that uh, receiving communities were reluctant to um, to open their home, so to speak, to to those in need because they they, they were viewed as potential risk. Um, so there is the the impact on various groups. Uh, it has been very, very, very different. Um, in terms of the number of flows, I mean, I don't have the concrete numbers yet because unfortunately there is always a lag in, in data um, and data lag trends. But um, uh, we know from, um, from records of um, uh, airline travels and, and um, uh, the, the, the um, the flows of travelers dropped significantly. It, it's in, in the beginning in, Mar in April, March, they were, we were talking about you know half the size of what it was before. And even though it picked up, it, we, we haven't really reached the levels of, of uh, traveling that was in similar months in 2019. Thank you, Jonna. That was great. Um, let me turn to Alan. Any of those questions that you want to answer? Uh, yes, let me uh, just uh, quickly, uh, because I think the key is answering uh, uh, Ray Kozlowski's question, uh, because in fact, at the end of this, and this is why the work that you're engaged in at MPI and IOM is so important, we really don't, uh, we know that uh, the travel, uh, we don't know how far travel bans and other restrictions actually kept the spread from occurring. Uh, this is the, uh, the, uh, the lack of data. We, we know that it, it did help in certain circumstances, but with regard to the uh, Brazilian uh, variant, uh, as with the earlier UK, we, we really don't have enough uh, data to know, A, uh, what uh, travel restrictions actually contributed uh, and B, uh, whether or not the vaccines are, are effective in, uh, in dealing with, uh, with variants. This will come with the data that you're gathering, but I think that's the answer that, uh, that uh, goes to the question on Title uh, 42 and also the differential treatment of asylum. We've been operating with a meat cleaver. Uh, that is not a good way to uh, make policy. Uh, uh, as opposed to using a scalpel and to actually start to uh, differentiate among people. So that the, the, the call now to lift uh, Title 42 in blanket fashion, I think uh, uh, is, is uh, perhaps as erroneous as the decision to put it in immediately in a blanket fashion without having capacity uh, as data informs our decision and science informs uh, our approach uh, to be able to differentiate among travelers, which I think is 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 going to be uh, critical going forward as we get back to this, this we we move away from uh, blanket bans 
to uh, a more differentiated approach. Uh, we have to treat people uh, different cases differently. Great, thank you, Ellen. And Liz, I mean, finally going to you on this, and there's one additional question for you, which is um, about whether the MICIC has been useful both in responding to the pandemic and in a potential return uh, to normality. So if you wanna address that as well as uh, anything else you want to, to tackle of all the rest of this. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, I, I think I want to just take that opportunity that one of the questions gives us to sort of broaden beyond the impact that border closures have on migration dynamics and then the other factors that will weigh in as we look to what the next five to 10 years will hold in terms of migration dynamics. Um, and I think you will see some strong impacts coming from, from you know, that intention and capacity um, and we often think about whether governments want migration, but rarely think so much about whether migrants want to migrate in a context where being separated from family could have a very different meaning these days. So how far people wish to travel and under what circumstances will now be a factor into, into, into whether people move, but also the capacity to move, um, which may change. We've talked about the cost, but we also talk, think about household finances to be able to, to manage uh, a, a safe journey. Um, and then those broader socioeconomic impacts, where is the labor demand going to be in the future? How will that play out both in terms of, of, of labor demand in, in countries of destination as well as uh, in, 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 in origin countries? And then the, the new things that the pandemic will bring in terms of remote working and new divides between jobs that can only be done in the geog geographic space um, of, of a country of destination and jobs that can be done remotely. And we've already seen this shift between the dichotomy between high mid skilled and, and, and low skilled working towards what, what is often termed as essential working versus not essential or at least not immediate working and, and how that will play out. I think in, in the long term, we'll, we'll have some um, big concerns, but I think we also need to look at some of the decisions being made now and how they will create capacity or lack of capacity to move. And one of the things, one of the, the headlines for IOM this year is really to ensure that, that migrant groups are incorporated within national vaccination programming. That's not to prioritize them above nationals, but rather integrate them into the priority categories that, that governments are creating. And that is important because if you leave non-nationals out of these vaccination groups, then you effectively take a lot of agency away in terms of mobility, but in terms of, of, of the risk to the population as a whole. And so we have to think about how all of these things play out in terms of migration dynamics. And um, I, I have spoken with MPI colleagues on this, which is that it is both a distressing time to talk about migration and mobility, but it has never been a more fascinating moment because so many new factors and, and, and concerns have been introduced. How do we, do, how do we untangle these and, and find the way forward, I think will be extremely important. Um, on the question on asylum seekers and how the pandemic affected asylum seekers, I think UNHCR has, um, I think it's contained in the paper, but UNHCR talks about 90 countries in 2020 that created no exceptions for asylum seekers when, when putting mobility restrictions in place. So it has been an issue across the world. Um, and I think we have to look at two things. One is the rule at the border in terms of who, who has the exception to cross, but also that imperative to cross and the relative importance of a tourist crossing a border and someone who is fleeing conflict and persecution. 
and how do we how do we measure those side by side? So it's not just whether there are exceptions or not, but but how how we manage that in the future as well, and make sure that that real needs to move are, are addressed effectively. And on the the question, the very specific question on on Michik Mikik, as I understand it, the migrants in in country and crisis framework, which was which was designed to really help migrants who who do get stranded in 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 conditions. Um, in exigency effectively and the framework that IOM put together. All I can say is that it has been used extensively internally to as we are collecting information internally on the impact on migrants and identifying needs around the world. We've used that framework in order to help scope those needs and where they exist, but also then help define our response in addressing stranded migrants in different places, particularly vulnerable groups and those sorts of things. Uh, and I agree, it hasn't been in the public sphere as much as it has been used internally, but uh, we, ha we have used that in order to, to help frame the response, um, particularly in the field uh, across the world, because there have been a huge range of measures undertaken from informing migrants um, about the risks of COVID, um, community outreach, um, giving support where people find themselves um, without financial support or housing or, or various other things. Um, so a huge range of things we've, we've used that framework. So it, it lives, but it may not live in, in the public conscious as strongly as it perhaps did five, five, ten years ago. Um, if that answers that question. Um, Liz, that's fabulous. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Jana. Thank you, Alan. This is a great panel. I saw a couple other questions come in, but we unfortunately we're out of time for this panel. We're going to move on to the second panel. So really a round of, of silent applause for a really provocative conversation. Um, and we will carry it on now in the in the next panel. Um, some of the questions that have been raised about what does this look like going forward? How will borders be managed? What sort of new health measures could be put into place? Um, as new variants are emerging, more people are vaccinated, but there's still huge gaps here. All of these questions are the subject of our, our second panel. And for that panel, we are really fortunate to have with us um, three great thinkers on these issues. Um, Brendan Dowling was the Minister Counselor for Home Affairs and Regional Director of the Americas for the Department of Home Affairs at the Embassy of Australia in Washington, DC. He was prior to that, he was Assistant Secretary Americas Europe, the Middle East and Africa in the International Division of the Department of Immigration and Border Protection. And he worked in Amman, Jordan for a long time in one of the department's largest refugee posts as well and, and brings that background with him. Um, Nanda uh, Kelly, uh, like Brendan, a good friend of, of MPI, is the senior advisor and people we, we often go to for, for advice in, in, in the governments, well, Australia and, and the Netherlands. Um, she is Minister Counselor for Home Affairs and Region, uh, sorry, is Senior Advisor at the Directorate General for Migration in the Dutch Ministry of Justice and Security. Um, she previously worked on asylum and migration policy in the European Parliament, um, the Dutch permanent representation in Brussels, and the cabinet of the president of the council. And finally, Kate Hooper, who I'm glad to say is my colleague at the Migration Policy Institute, is a policy analyst with MPI's international program, where she works primarily on the Transatlantic Council on Migration, but also leads a lot of our work on labor migration, migration development, and refugee and immigrant integration. So great to have all three of you with us. And for those of you who have uh, questions, we will we will have a question and answer session um, that follows in the same mechanics. Um, let me start off with Brendan. All right, thanks. 
Andrew, thanks for the introduction and thanks to MPI for hosting this event and the extraordinary work that's gone into the uh, paper. I'll just give a quick, I think um, there's a number of issues that the other panelists have uh, touched on uh, that are really relevant to how we think to the next steps that Australia will be uh, taking. Um, but I think we're a good example of how the differentiated approach to these issues are being applied by different countries. So I just want to run current status Australia's uh, uh, we all know Australia is a, a migrant nation. We have um, a huge proportion of our population um, who have uh, migrated or who are the children of migrants. Our labour market is highly dependent on migrants. Um, tourism is obviously a big factor uh, in our economy as are international students. So like many other countries, we are highly economically and socially dependent on migration. So it's been particularly painful for Australia to adopt the highly restrictive measures that we have over the course of the pandemic and for them to still be in place uh, at this point in time. We adopted border closures early and they have effectively remained in place consistently throughout the pandemic. At the moment, we still maintain hard quarantine arrangements. So everyone who travels to Australia is subject to a two week quarantine uh, period. Uh, we also have in place uh, passenger caps uh, to, uh, to support the uh, capacity of those quarantine uh, arrangements. And to give you an idea of just how restrictive those passenger caps are, uh, no more than 430 passengers can land at Sydney International Airport on a daily basis. Melbourne, our second biggest uh, city, um, has had no international arrivals for uh, months, um, is about to reintroduce international arrival uh, into Melbourne. That will be limited to 800 people per week. Um, I don't have ahead of me uh, the, the stats on what pre-pandemic levels of arrivals were, but they were substantially higher. That is a, an extraordinary low number of people who are being allowed to arrive into Australia. Everyone who does needs to apply um, for uh, pre-approval to enter. Um, they need to complete uh, travel de declarations uh, with health and travel history uh, information. And now they need to submit negative testing uh, information as well. There remains a global uh, restriction on Australians exiting Australia. You need individual permission to exit uh, the country. So Australians are effectively limited from traveling uh, globally. What that has meant for us is that we've, we've effectively limited um, the community transmission of uh, COVID-19 for most of the last year. Uh, aside from occasional outbreaks that have led to uh, some form of um, restrictions uh, in Australia, when I talk to my colleagues back home and to my family back home, they're effectively living life. This includes working in the office, this includes sporting events. Um, I'm, I'm, I expect not many of you follow the Australian Football League, but there are, are 75,000 people at, uh, at, at, at the games uh, at the moment. Uh, people are not wearing masks when they go to work uh, and meetings. So community transmission is effectively negative, uh, is, is effectively zero in Australia, has been for months aside from those um, outbreaks. So the border restrictions have come at a great cost but have had an extraordinary benefit in terms of how Australia's dealt with um, uh, the pandemic. 
where that leaves us at the moment is trying to navigate our way out of those restrictive border closures to what looks like a plan for reopening. At this stage, we are being extremely cautious about that. Uh, as has been mentioned, for some months, we've had a one-way travel bubble with New Zealand, which has enabled uh, New Zealand citizens uh, or people traveling from New Zealand um, to enter Australia without quarantine. Later this month, uh, that will become a two-way travel bubble where people traveling from Australia to New Zealand will be able to uh, travel without quarantine. A couple of things we'll rely on uh, uh, include being confident that the person has been in Australia or New Zealand respectively for the couple of weeks uh, beforehand, has been, uh, uh, is submitting uh, negative testing information, is submitting other personal information to support contact uh, tracing. Through what we what we have at our end is the Australian Travel Declaration, which is a digital platform to collect uh, a range of that uh, information. The, the green travel zone from New Zealand to Australia has operated pretty well. Um, there's been about 250 months and expect that traffic to increase substantially now that we'll be able to travel with uh, uh, Australians going to New Zealand. Um, it is always subject to the potential that it will be shut or suspended as it has been um, already. But that's 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 a, a big step for us. Our government's looking at um, trying to free up some employer-sponsored uh, labour migration um, in the realms of uh, uh, twenty thousand or so uh, in the coming year. Um, some of our high-skilled labour migration will start to uh, be allowed, but it will all still be subject to the very tight uh, border restrictions. What we're looking at now is. How do, we, how do we navigate our way out of this? How do we get to a future biosecure uh, border system? Maintaining our very low tolerance for risk. So uh, we won't be looking at any broad or um, uh, widespread reopening of the border um, in the short term. What we will be doing is looking at a staggered way to come out of this. Uh, a number of the things that uh, Alan Burson mentioned is really what we're looking at as a way to manage uh, those risks as we reopen. Essentially, it's about how do we embed biosecurity as part of our border management system, which means collecting more data on travellers, uh, vaccination status, uh, testing uh, results, um, and also the location from which uh, a person is travelling from and where they've been over the previous 14 to 28 days. While to a degree that does embed some of the concerns that have been raised around differentiated treatment um, inequity in terms of access to a country like Australia, in terms of uh, the ability for Australians to exit to go to different uh, countries. Um, we will, we, we're increasingly recognising that with patchy vaccination rollout globally, with patchy transmission rates, it will be highly important to us to know where a traveller has been in the last 14 to 28 days. And that will be a key piece of information to inform their risk profile in terms of the COVID transmission risk. So we're looking at digital platforms to better collect information upstream before the traveller embarks for Australia, ideally to be able to verify that information. We, our ideal is that our data collection is compatible with other countries, with industry and with international organisations so that we're all collecting similar data in a similar way, in a way that can be verified. Now, I think we all know that's far easier said than done, particularly when we look at vaccination rollout, 
not all countries are collecting centralized information about status. But how do we verify whether someone has uh, received a vaccination which the Australian government considers uh, I don't think there's an answer to that question uh, today. There's a lot of initiatives looking at what the digital platforms um, uh, uh, will be uh, that will be available uh, that will work, but there's a proliferation of initiatives that aren't necessarily tied to central databases. There's concerns about privacy. There's concerns about people um, volunteering their own personal uh, health information. So the ideal of being able to collect that information and being able to verify that seems some way off uh, for us. But that's that's what we're working towards. That's what we're talking to international partners uh, about. Uh, thank you. The, thank the you, final Brad. point of my... Sorry, just one final point, Andrew, um, is just to talk about we want to look at the future resilience of the system. So we have an eye to what needs to be in place for future pandemics. We're expecting future pandemics in our lifetimes of this nature. We think, um, and it, 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 it's an obvious point, but one that we don't necessarily um, express that frequently, it was a catastrophic failure of international cooperation that we have all had to shut down the international mobility system in such a comprehensive way. We cannot let that happen again. What the answers are to resilience in that system are more difficult, but we, we are prepared to invest a lot of energy, uh, time and cooperation in global approaches that mean we can deal with future pandemics in a far more targeted way and not have to shut down the entire system um, uh, in the blunt way that we all have in, over the last uh, year. Comprehensive and a great place to end, which is, is how do we do this better? Learning what we've learned from this, which is, which is something that I think is on on everyone's mind because this won't be the last time. Um, Nanda Kelly, um, go ahead. Looking forward to your remarks. Thank you and good afternoon to everybody. It's good seeing um, some very familiar faces again. And I wish it would be possible for me to be as structured and future oriented as Brendan. But uh, I am actually here to talk about the EU perspective, so it will never be as structured and future oriented, I'm afraid. Um, as coming from Australia, which we could use as an example. Um, first of all, I would like to start off with the Dutch point of view, because I think it's also interesting to to look at this uh, from the perspective of indeed uh, a small nation, but one with very open borders normally um, and many people traveling to and from. If you look at what has happened in 2020, just shortly to look back, is that we basically had less of everything. Um, less asylum seekers, less labor migrants, less resettled refugees, less international students, and less migrants returning to countries of origin. But the percentages of the less are actually, um, are differing widely. So when it comes to international travelers, it went down to um, uh, to well 10% of what we normally have. If you look at Schiphol, Schiphol is a very busy airport, a very big international airport. Um, it actually went down to like 10% of what it is normally. But if you look at the asylum seekers, just because of being part of the European Union, um, we only had 30% less asylum seekers coming to the Netherlands compared to pre pandemic. So that's a big difference when you look at the numbers. Um, and even when you look at resettlement and return, part of it actually did go through 
and we have picked up again uh, where we were kind of uh, before the uh, pandemic. Um, then looking at labour migrants, indeed, it's a different category again. Uh, there will still people actually being able to move to the Netherlands uh, for their work. And we just um, looked at permits kind of similar uh, percentages to what we did pre-pandemic. It's only like 10% less of what we received before the pandemic started. So I think that um, when you talk about human mobility, it is indeed worthwhile to look into uh, different categories, as is done in the in the paper as well, which was very useful to provide um, food for thought. Um, but it is indeed very necessary to look at these different categories and then and then look at the basis, trying to think about what will happen in the future. And there were, of course, negative angles to this. Um, so indeed, um, less resettlement, less return. Uh, was really difficult for for the system uh, and really difficult for refugees as um, indeed as Liz just said they only have one way of coming over if that way stops then it just basically stops everything um, but there were also some positive angles when you look at the faster exploration of the use of technology uh, when it comes to resettlement when it comes to the asylum procedure for example or return um, and the extra time given to our systems to deal, for example, with the backlog of pending uh, asylum requests. We have actually, and many European Union member states did, used our time well to indeed deal with uh, at least part of the backlog that we had. Then from the EU point of view, um, as said before, not as structured, uh, I think the focus for the EU and the, its member states in the beginning was very much on on three things, on closing internal borders, unfortunately, on closing the external border, which we managed, um, and we even managed to come up with a certain scientific-based system to rank um, states outside of the European Union um, and to see whether indeed we should close our external borders to them or not. That system is still in place. and the uh, list of countries is still being reviewed, uh, which I think if you would have said that this would be possible before the pandemic, nobody would have believed you. Nobody would have believed that the EU member states would be able to come up with a system and with a system that still works, that continues to work and to give, um, to give a basis for decision-making every several weeks to actually review the list. And I think the third focus was uh, very much on getting back EU citizens all over the world to get them back to uh, the EU and to, um, to help them to facilitate their traveling. So that was the focus very much in the first few months. Um, where are we now? We still have internal border controls more than ever. Um, and there's still a lot of travel restrictions within the EU and the external border is still closed. I think the most promising uh, proposal that has been uh, out there for a while um, is the digital green or the green digital certificate from the Commission. And I think all member states do realise and also the European Parliament that we need to decide on this quickly. 
I don't think it's possible because the Commission actually came out with a proposal that is fit for an emergency situation. A very simple, uh, from legal base to uh, practical consequences, very simple proposal that if we do agree, it could be as effective as the system that was designed uh, for the external borders closure and the decision, continued decision making on this. Um, so, when looking at the future, um, I think this is one of the first proposals that will be a test for the EU member states, to which will actually define whether we would be capable to move from the very national focus that we had, because healthcare is still a very national-based competition. And if you look at the Dutch governments, by whom, by or the EU governments, by whom they are advised, they are advised by the national health care experts still on uh, what to do when fighting this crisis. This will be the first test to see whether we could go move to a more coordinated approach and uh, move to indeed something which, to be very honest, we're not really that good at, namely um, to develop an IT system or national databases which are then interoperable between all of them to actually make this green digital certificate work, because that's what we need to be able to open our borders and start again with free movement of people. I think another test will be to move indeed then from internal border controls to control borders. There is an increased need for controlled borders, but in a way that it provides or facilitates more freedom of movement. I think if you would have said, um, a little over a year ago, that the border between Portugal and Spain would actually be closed for months now already, nobody would have believed you. Or that certain villages between uh, Norway and Sweden, where the border just actually crosses the village, are now closed, nobody would have believed you. But it's been going on for months. And to be honest, I think people also kind of got used to this feeling of border controls being part of feeling safe. And I think this is something governments need to deal with, that if you now move to open borders again, how do you then provide instruments for these people to still feel safe? Well, so the certificate is one of them. Um, other instruments are indeed there as well, but we need to look into that. Uh, more police cooperation, for example, at EU internal borders more um, exchange of information, um, taking up, as Brandon just said, healthcare or biosecurity into the border system. How do we do that? Then a third element is a possible increased pressure of migration at the external borders of the EU. Even in 2020, we saw an increase of flows from, for example, Tunisia or Algeria towards Italy and Spain. And research is showing that indeed, because of a continuous lack of perspective of young people who uh, cannot find jobs and economy is going down in countries like Tunisia and Algeria, who very much depend, which very much depend on tourism, are considering to move to the EU. It will be interesting to see what this will do to governments who are actually facing the need of their citizens for increased freedom of movement, but in a safe way, and then 
balance that with an increased migration pressure at the south of uh, the EU. Fourth element is international travel bubbles. Even within the EU, we had travel bubbles like the Baltics. Um, what to do with that? European Commission will have to decide what to do with that. They're not keen on that because, of course, they want this open Schengen area. Um, so they first have to decide what to do with EU travel bubble, bubbles, and then we will have to decide what to do with international travel bu bubbles. What if indeed Australia and New Zealand are proposing to the EU, let's make a joint travel bubble? What would that look like? And a fifth element, which I think we have to consider, is the cooperation between governments and private companies. Um, airlines are basically saying, give us a system, make it simple. May, do please not make it too costly because we're still paying for the systems that we had to introduce as a consequence of 9-11 and everything following after that. Um, but please introduce a system with which we can start again um, uh, traveling. So I think these five elements are for the EU, uh, the green digital certificate, the move from internal border controls to controlled borders, the possible increased pressure of migration at the external borders, um, travel bubbles within the EU and international travel bubbles, and the cooperation between governments and private companies moving from the focus on healthcare to economy and traveling tourism again, uh, will be the five elements to watch carefully uh, when it comes to the EU and to see how they deal with human mobility and the effects of COVID. Thanks. Thank you. That that was great, Nanda. Um, we are going to go 10 minutes over. I know we advertised ending at half past the hour, but um, we will go 10 minutes over because I want to give her a chance to speak. And then we want to take a few quick questions. So you can feel free while Kate is speaking to type your questions in and we'll do a lightning round to answer them. Uh, Kate, the microphone is yours. Thanks, Andrew. Um, so I will, I will be quite quick, but just make maybe sort of two or three points here. Um, I really want to sort of echo some of the things that we've heard today about how these opportunities to migrate will remain really uneven for at least the short term. Um, we talked about some of the disruptions that we've seen to migration corridors, and I think that ultimately some of these disruptions are likely to be quite sticky over time. You know, we've heard about how migration trends are currently based as much on epidemiological conditions as anything else at the moment. So even though we normally have sort of economic, geographic, cultural ties kind of underpinning these migration corridors, you know, public health is a real sort of factor determining whether you can move and under sort of what circumstances. And, you know, looking sort of forward, um, you know, this is likely to sort of stay in place um, as as we sort of explore ways to reopen, you know, some some parts of the world are going to get left behind in those efforts. Um, another sort of theme really is that different countries and regions have quite uneven capacities to health proof their borders. And it really sort of risks is exaggerating this global mobility gap that we heard the DG talk about earlier um, this morning. You know, one issue that we've covered is this very uneven vaccine access. So while high income countries um, as a whole are generally on track to vaccinate their populations in 2021, this might not happen for some countries until 2022 or 2023. And so, as Liz mentioned, you know, moving towards greater use of vaccines as a sort of means to facilitate travel risks leaving some of these populations behind who may be stuck either excluded entirely or sort of stuck with more costly um, 
you know, travel requirements, things like testing or quarantine instead. Um, another issue that sort of goes into this um, problem with uneven capacities is that some countries have sort of weaker public health systems or less developed border infrastructure. So it becomes much harder to implement some of the sort of new requirements that are going to become a standard of international travel. Um, you know, when we're looking about looking at regions with more porous land borders, for example, that presents a much hard harder sort of prospects to roll out something like a digital health record if it's fairly easy to circumvent some of these um, requirements at the border. And then, of course, some countries are just better primed to roll out digital health records than others. You know, some countries already have a lot of this data collection capacity in place. And this is the case even for a country like the United States, where, you know, the government has sort of taken a step back and said that this will need to be a private sector led initiative because the government doesn't want to play this role, isn't able to play this role currently. Um, I think one point that I might pick up on from Nanda is this point about pressures at borders. You know, when we're talking about restrictions and this idea of, um, you know, kind of creating a biosecure border like Brendan was talking about. One problem with that so prospect is that restrictions can reduce, but they don't curb migration. So I think that when we're talking about how to roll out this sort of new mobility system that's really equipped to deal with some of the public health challenges that we're dealing with. Um, the reality is that re these restrictions aren't always going to stop people from moving. You know, people have very compelling reasons to move, whether that's, you know, to seek protection or to reunite family or to find work. And I think the danger of sort of assuming that we can keep the door closed is that it renders migration journeys more dangerous for those on the move. You know, people end up being pushed towards more indirect or dangerous routes or they end up using the services of smugglers. So I think that that's a reality that we need to contend with when designing these policies and thinking about how to roll them out is that, you know, you, can, you can't effectively seal the border in this way. Um, and I think so keeping those factors in mind when we're talking about international cooperation on these issues, it's both about coordinating things. So reducing the risk of duplication, ensuring interoperability, but it's also about building capacity. You know, for some countries, introducing these measures is really going to require quite deep investments in their public health systems and border infrastructure. So I think that we need to keep those two factors in mind as we talk about how to sort of take forward cooperation on these issues. And then a final point sort of from the other side of things, um, you know, we've have seen some labor migration continuing throughout the pandemic, but I don't think that we should assume that demand for labor migration is necessarily going to look the same after the pandemic. You know, I think that the pandemic has really illustrated the important role that migrant workers play in some sectors, and some of these sectors have been much, much more insulated from the economic impacts of the pandemic than others. And we should assume that as things open up, that demand may sort of pick up again, even in some of the worst hit sectors like hospitality. But I think that, for example, this shift to teleworking will have some quite lasting effects. You know, companies may go back to the office, but I think that it might impact their business operations going forward. You know, one aspect of this is that I think companies are going to really reconsider when business travel is necessary and when virtual meetings are going to suffice. So that's an area where we may see some lasting impacts in terms of when people decide to take those journeys. Um, but it also might mean, for example, that companies are more open to hiring people who work remotely, whether that's in another city or state or even in another country. And some of these labor migration policies are really built on the assumption that an employer sponsored migrant will relocate full time and bring their family with them. But what happens if companies decide that's what, not what they need to happen anymore? So there may be a sort of lasting impact um, and so greater demand for more flexible arrangements that allow people to come and go as needed. 
Um, and then a sort of final point with that is that we have also seen the pandemics have caused some to question when they should be recruiting migrant workers. So in part in the sort of agricultural sector, for example, there has been a resurrection of some conversations around, you know, whether it's the moment to start investing in mechanization or automation instead. So that's a sort of ongoing conversation. But to give New Zealand as an example, you know, we've seen the immigration minister talk about how he doesn't expect immigration to return to pre-pandemic levels and that the government will be sort of focusing on upskilling local workers instead to meet some of these demands. So I think that we shouldn't assume that as things reopen, that the demand is necessarily going to look quite the same or that the sort of supply of workers is going to be quite the same either. That's both incredibly clear, provocative and, and succinct. Um, we have four minutes left and we have two questions. So only two questions. Um, and with that, we will wrap up this, this really insightful uh, uh, discussion today. I think you guys have made everything quite clear. So there, we still have a lot of people online, but not a lot of questions. Grant, um, Grant uh, Duckworth is asking, how long do you think it's gonna take to get a harmonized standards on vaccine certificates up and going? Um, and Martin Smith is asking, um, what safeguards exist in um, that will govern the digital green certificates to make sure that they're not discriminatory? Do any of you want to take a shot at one or two of those questions? I'm, I'm happy to take the first one, um, Andrew. Uh, the I think really I'm not sure we'll get there. I'm not sure global harmonisation of vaccine certification is something that we will achieve in the short, medium. Uh, I'm not op optimistic beyond that. Um, the vaccinations rollout is happening at pace in a country like America. Being able to access a digital database um, where there's a consistent um, uh, uh, storage of information in a compatible way, it doesn't look like something that uh, many countries are going to be able to achieve. I think that will end up in governments setting their own requirements in different locations. I think it'll end up with industry stepping in. And I think the best we can hope for at this point is sort of post hoc compatibility between uh, some of those uh, systems. Um, I'm not optimistic at this point that we will achieve um, a high degree of harmonization. I could be wrong. We're optimistic. We're buying into the WHO work, um, the Estonia pilot, the guard time work, the IATA work, but it looks like we are going to end up with um, a balkanized system rather than anything that's uh, uh, much more compatible. Thank you, Brandon. Anyone else want to jump in on that? Nanda or Kate? Yes, please. No, I agree with Brennan. Unfortunately, I'm a very optimistic person, but uh, I think already within the EU will be difficult to harmonize. Um, and of course, you have to take into account where we're starting from. Not all the vaccines are actually accepted everywhere already. So what do you do with certificates that are based on a vaccine that are not accepted by healthcare agencies in certain countries? And um, that will be an interesting question. Um, so when it comes to the digital, the green digital certificate, the second question that you posed, um, it depends, of course, on your definition of discrimination. Uh, if you find that if you give these certificates only to people who are vaccinated, have a negative test or are recovering from COVID, which is the idea with the green digital certificate, but not for other people and that that is discriminating, then then yes, no, we will have a discriminating system. 
Um, and that is, of course, a discussion that is probably held in, in all the countries already. Um, but I think that governments do need to accept a system which indeed distinguishes, unfortunately, those three categories from people who do not want to be vaccinated, do not want to get tested and cannot prove that they have had COVID already. Uh, but this will be, of course, uh, a source of political discussions. Yes, and governments, you can see that governments also in the UK, there's an interesting discussion now. Governments are slowly moving to, but we do need these certificates in order to be opening up at least something. Thank you, Nanda. Um, and, and thank you, Brendan, Nanda and Kate for a fabulous panel. Um, we've run out of time. I know that there are some interesting uh, questions um, still there, uh, but we will uh, we will have to hold that for the next time. Um, a lot on the table here. I think there is a, a consensus on the three of you that that there's a need for a lot of coordination and for cooperation. But some of this is going to happen in a more ad hoc way. The best you can do is get that you know as people are are innovating going forward to try and get as much cooperation and communication as possible to try and figure out how to begin to systematize. Uh, some of these things to try and avoid some of the, the negative consequences, uh, what someone referred to as discrimination, how to avoid some of the, the negative consequences, and also how to differentiate among different populations, keeping in mind asylum seekers who are who are forced to migrate as a different category from other migrants, as a category from travelers, as a different category from people who live in cross-border relationships in those towns that Nana talked about that are divided between between cities and where cross-border existence is part of daily life. You know, we have to think about those distinctions that happen as we're looking at the at the uh, the the options going forward in how to begin restoring mobility in some sort of coherent and coordinated way. Thank you to everyone who participated in today's discussion. We look forward to continuing the conversation. This is really a first shot across the bow, if you wish, a first, a first attempt to create a baseline on, uh, on where we are a year into the pandemic. But the hope is to continue to do this in the future as, as there are further changes and to begin uh, working between IOM and MPI, begin also creating something of a roadmap on some of the options uh, that may be out there in the future um for how we can do this in as as coordinated and coherent a way as possible thank you to everyone thank you to lisa dixon who planned today's event um and take care everybody